0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host Yascha Zaitz and this is another episode in the short series about AI in healthcare. In the previous episodes you could hear from Wajin Kim, Chief Medical Information Officer at Nuance, as he explained the current state of AI in radiology and why, though AI is advancing, it will for sure not replace radiologists anytime soon.
1: When you look at image interpretations only, that aspect only, there are so many different things we look for other than lung nodules and breast cancers when it comes to radiology. So for example, when you look at a lot of the AI models that are out there that are making headlines, you see a lot of them uh, saying you know, things like, hey, you know what, uh, this AI model uh, you know, was able to detect breast cancers as well or better than radiologists or faster than radiologists. But I can tell you, when I look at a particular image, I'm not looking at just one thing. I'm looking at literally hundreds, if not thousands of different possible things that could be present on an image. Today, the AI is very narrow. You know, people talk about narrow AI. So there's a lot of limitations, which means that if you want to really replace radiologists just in the image interpretation part, today you would need literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of models, which we do not have.
0: In the previous episode... And the professor Dr. Tadej Batilino talked about the rise of AI-supported platforms and decision support systems in diabetes.
1: What we now believe is that we need a digital clinic. We actually started to use this and in February 2020 in Madrid there will be the first consensus on digital clinic where we want to set standards how artificial intelligence should be included into let's say a clinical outpatient work with a person with diabetes. If it actually finally turns out the computer is as good, as good is enough. If the computer is as good as diabetologists from Yale, from Harvard, from Minnesota, and if you want from Slovenia, then we made it. Then actually all of a sudden we have in our team one additional specialist for diabetes, in this case a computer. Obviously, this is only a suggestion.
0: Today, you will hear from Bill Rogers, CEO of Orbita, which is more widely known as the WordPress for AI applications in healthcare. Bill has extensive experience in software development and voice technology, and you will hear him explain how our voice assistants used in healthcare already? Where is the development heading and where does all the excitement about voice technology come from? If you're curious about other episodes and want to explore digital health further, browse through the episodes on your podcast player or read recaps of each show at www.facesofdigitalhealth.com where you can search for other digital health and healthcare systems related topics. Two more episodes are coming up in this AI series, so make sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified about the discussions. Coming up next is a conversation about AI in stroke research, and we're going to end the series with ethics of AI in healthcare. Stay tuned. And as always, if you like the show, share it with your network, and the best way to show your support is if you leave a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. In this way, others interested in digital health will find the show as well. Thank you. Now to voice assistants Bill, to which extent do you still manually write down your notes or and to which extent do you uh, use a voice assistant instead, a dictation dating uh, machine instead?
2: Interesting. So I do actually use uh, my phone to take uh, smart notes, which is just easier for me to uh, collect information because it's faster than me writing the information
0: down. Voice assistants and technology have a long history uh, since the 60s, actually. But the real development started with Amazon Alexa after 2014. For starters, what has changed by today? How is voice digested by AI? Is it transcribed and then further analyzed and used for further analysis and use? Just a brief overview of how it
2: works. The big change that happened four years ago, and you are correct, it's been been out in the marketplace uh, for a lot of years, but over the last four years has been the the real enormous changes. And every year you're seeing those changes happen at such an aggressive pace. But it's really about deep AI that makes it work. And so when you think about uh, existing phone technology and the ability to talk into a phone and for the phone to understand what you're saying, transcribing that essentially into text, uh, without deep AI it wasn't accurate enough and so people's acceptance to accuracy is very low but with deep learning and the power that you can apply to it in the cloud you're able to get accuracy in the 90s percentile uh, and and so like mid 90s 95% and uh, that has been the game changer Um, and what we're seeing is that that technology continues to be enhanced and the accuracy will continue to improve. Just making 1% difference at this point is has huge impact on how people perceive it.
0: But how are the AI models trained in order to recognize what an individual is saying? For example, especially in English, which is a global language, um, so many people speak in so many different accents, and you can see that when you use transcribing um, software, that it may not recognize what you thought you said um, because of your accent.
2: Correct. And ultimately, one of the big game changers, too, is that since this has been running in the cloud, you actually have the data that can be used for training. So Alexa and Google, now deployed to over 200 million devices, is constantly collecting data from people that have Accent's. And ultimately that data is analyzed and it's applied to the, to the deep learning to improve the algorithms.
0: So the the accuracy of the misheard words uh, improved significantly, as you already mentioned before. In 2012, the accuracy of misheard words was at 23%, and then it moved up to 5% today, which is a really nice improvement. And it's great if you're searching for music, if you're searching for the weather or a recipe, but potentially still problematic if you try to use the technology in healthcare what do you think about that what are the less risky use cases of voice in healthcare at the moment
2: organizations are starting to use uh, voice as a way for people to lower the barrier for them to en- engage in healthcare and one of them is the digital front door if you look at websites. Uh, Voice doesn't always need to work across an Alexa or a Google device. Those are low friction types of devices to use, but people are always interacting with a smartphone and their ability... uh, One of the most used cases in healthcare is people are searching for content, for information. In fact, some of the largest organizations in the world like Mayo Clinic, the number of health searches is in the tens of millions a month where people are searching on content. And if you think about going to a website and navigating to find content, your voice has has the ability to to do a a very uh, long query. So you might say, I want to search for the symptoms of appendicitis and you get an instant response back with that data. And now that it understands the context of what you're doing, you might say treatment, and it'll return back treatment information, or when should I see the doctor? But you didn't have to say appendicitis in any time, and it becomes a much more natural way for people to engage with it. Another example in healthcare that we're very excited about is that uh, we're working uh, with um, hospitals in Australia, where we've deployed a bedside assistant, and the bedside assistant replaces the call button. A person's voice, their ability to say, I need to go to the bathroom, or I need water, two different requests needs to be routed to two different types of people. Uh, The fact that you can automate that process saves the fact that a nurse doesn't have to come to the bedside assistant and find out what does the person want and then find the right person to go deliver the service to the user and often those questions are questions that the assistant can just answer like if the person said what are the visiting hours or how can someone call me and then having that those answers available to them one creates very good customer satisfaction but it also just alleviates the 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 amount of work that nurses are doing that can be reduced. It also reduces the number of falls because if somebody says I need to go to the bathroom versus them just trying to get out of bed because they don't just don't know they they need to go get something it can save quite a bit of uh, money that way as well.
0: So Orbita offers the leading healthcare-focused platform for designing and building HIPAA-compliant virtual assistants that engage and support uh, patients, as you just uh, described. So uh, if I just mention a few of the other institutions that you work with, uh, Orbita works with Amgen, American Red Cross, uh, Mayo Clinic, Pillow Health. Could you just further explain the, the use cases? What else is uh, voice-assisting technology used for? Is it more, mostly organizational things? How far are we still from using um, voice-assisted technology for actual patient medical data?
2: One of the challenge for patient medical data uh, has been how do you deliver a HIPAA-compliant solution into the marketplace. And so fortunately what we've seen in the, the last couple of months now that Amazon announced uh, HIPAA eligibility, which means that HIPAA is in a beta program. But that means that it opens up the opportunity to create applications across these market speakers that are HIPAA compliant. When we think about uh, conversational voice, it's not just voice, it's also uh, the ability to do smart chatbots as well. And so you could deliver a HIPAA-compliant solution across a mobile phone uh, because it wasn't the back-end that was the problem. It was the Alexa service that was the problem at the time. But now that that's becoming hipaa compliance, there's much more awareness that it can be done.
0: How long have the solutions that uh, your partners or your customers have been in use? So. Um, are we talking mostly about pilot projects? Are these solutions already used on a wider scale?
2: Uh, they're being used in, in wider scales. Uh, there's, there are uh, applications in being used in telemedicine uh, where you're helping to interact with the patient before the doctor is uh, interacting. We're doing projects uh, with remote patient monitoring companies where we're engaging with patients uh, that uh, you would normally require a call from a health Assistant to engage and ask them assessment questions that determine from the data that they have received from the devices that they're engaged with uh, might mean that something needs to be done with that patient. That is been in market for a number of, for about a year now with Medtronic. We have done a number of uh, projects in the pharmaceutical space. We've done a clinical trial that's engaged with patients. Through migraine, uh, headache management and uh, their ability to uh, log their symptoms, their ability to do their daily diaries. What a voice assistant does, it lowers that friction for them to be able to engage. And because it can be deployed across uh, multiple devices, smart speakers as well as phones, it means that you can in- interact with these assistants anywhere at any time. You're not limited to just, just that the speakers at your, at your home.
0: How do these logs look like? How much work does the user have afterwards?
2: When you're doing a daily diary, you're doing an assessment. We have a, the advanced assessment survey that does scoring and collects that data. When you're doing symptom, uh, logging a symptom, in that case of migraine headaches, it, when they would interact with the Alexa device and they would, they would say, how can I help you, you can log a symptom. It gives them a couple of options of what they can do, and one of them is log a symptom. And so if they said log a symptom, it would then just ask them, what is the symptom that you want to log? It collects the data, it repeats it back to them, and they acknowledge it's correct, and it's logged. So it's pretty frictionless for them to be able to engage and do that.
0: One of the interesting things when it comes to voice solutions is how they are developed and designed in the first place. And this process actually requires a completely new uh, profile. So the job is called a voice UX designer. Can we stop there a little bit? So what are the current backgrounds of? voice designers and is this just the beginning stage of the profession
2: so it's going to be a very important profession they are uh, people that if you think about when you you would design a website you would make a a white paper prototype and that prototype you would distribute and interact and the 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 ux person is ultimately helping to decide what are the buttons, what's the call to actions, what are you trying to get accomplished, and they build out the wireframes of of that website. Voice is a little bit more complex because what you visually see and what you visually hear, not usually the same thing. Um, so what, for example, if you're designing for an uh, Alexa device that has a display, and your American Red Cross or Mayo Clinic, and you ask a question around first aid, you, what you visually see typically is a bolded list of information that comes back when you say, how do I treat a burn? But what you're, you're hearing is more as you would explain it to someone. And so it has, contains more information, uh, as opposed to the, here's the bolded list of what you're going to go see. And of course, you can show an image and you can allow, because these devices support videos, you could support videos. And so a voice UX person has to think about when somebody says, how do I treat a burn? What do I respond with? And, what do I give the user for navigation for the next thing that they could say? Or do I just say, how else can I help you? Which ultimately doesn't lead to a great transactional experience where you would, might have the ability to engage longer with the user.
0: Which brings us to the question of how these design are tested in the end. If you have to basically almost guess what the response should be or what the response uh, a person that's interacting with the voice assistant is going to expect. How are the testings done in practice?
2: What you will find is that um, this is was one of the difficult things that we discovered when we first started working with Large profile clients. What they would do is give you what looked like a Visio flowchart of this is how I wanted to respond. And when you looked at it, it looks good when you read it, but when you listen to it, you know that this is not going to work. And so we actually developed a prototyping tool that allows you, without any doing any coding, you know what would the bot say, what would the user say, what would the bot say, and created a shareable link, and people could play it. And listen to it. And on every turn that the bot or the user said, somebody could comment on it so that they instantly got feedback. That actually took away a lot of the friction because again, very, it's almost like the paper prototyping of a website on how to go do that because if you don't do those sorts of things and we don't we're not the only prototyping tool in the marketplace so strongly recommend people do these voice prototyping and share it with your stakeholders to understand is this really solving and what what would people actually say when they heard something because that's gonna give you a lot of insights and might properly helping them to get down some sort of funnel that you're trying to get them to.
0: What are your expectations regarding um, how fast could we see voice technology being used in the clinical practice more broadly? I would say that some solutions have been with us for quite a while. For example, especially uh, Nuance has uh, dictating software that allows nice creation of reports that doctors need to make.
2: Yes, and, and so you're seeing this acceleration over the last four years, and I don't see that acceleration... Slowing down any, at any point. And so now people realize that it can have a great impact on patients. And because it can have that great impact on reducing costs, cre- increase in patient satisfaction, uh, helping the patient be better educated, that people are starting to move towards uh, these types of solutions. You, you see that there was a, over the last couple of years, there's been a number of uh, solutions that are uh, messaging systems. Some a patient would leave the hospital and they would get SMS texts uh, asking them a question. And uh, that's a, that's like the beginning of of having a conversational AI solution. Uh, what's what we have the ability now is it goes from a text reminder that they they actually get into a full uh, pledge uh, rich experience. So that text message might, might come. They slide on the text message. It opens up into a rich chat interface. It's a browser chat interface. Just like you received a message about airline ticket and you slide it and now you're in a rich experience to engage to, to manage your tickets. This is helping you to manage your health. And so because you have this advantage of when you answer a set of questions, like, for example, we're doing a project with Brigham's and Women's Hospital around men's uh, prostate cancer, the virtual assistant can call the patient. uh, We we tell the patient that they got their prostate score and the score is this value, and that value is the only call the patients that have a low value, which is good, and tell them the good news, this is what the score is, this is what it means, but we need to ask you a few questions. And based on that questions, it then um, uh, will determine, do I need to schedule an appointment? And so you can automate that whole appointment scheduling. And then you can say, do you have any questions on prostate cancer? And because there's a knowledge graph, it can answer those types of questions. That's a kind of a game changer in how you can engage patients because you could never really ask that open ended question Do you have a question on prostate cancer? in like a, just a simple texting messaging system. And this basically saves resources because you don't have to have a medical person calling a person to tell them good news. And ultimately, that person's calling people and they're getting a nobody's answer on the phone as probably 75% of the time. So it allows the doctors and the medical staff to do what they've been trained to do and uh, be offloading it to a virtual assistant to to help with these kinds of tasks.
0: How many testing has already been done regarding how these kind of messages are accepted by uh, patients? Because I think healthcare, especially because it's such a sensitive uh, area, people like to have a human touch. So it's different if you receive a message or news from a doctor or if you receive it from a bot.
2: Right. And that's an example of why they were only sending out those messages that had positive news in that particular case. But there was quite a bit of testing on the bedside assistant and nurses themselves Find that the bedside assistant; they feel that one, it is uh, just creates efficiency so that they can actually help people that need the help the most. Um, where the the patient actually feels that their request has actually been heard and actually somebody's engaging with them, so they feel quite a bit more satisfied with the fact that they can ask questions, get answers to that. And but when they need to do a request that needs a person like get out of the bed or go to the bathroom. They feel that that's more likely to get a response because they had a a voice come back and say, somebody's going to be with you in just a couple of minutes, versus they clicked a button and they don't know what's going to happen next.
0: There's a lot of excitement around voice assistance also for changing the patient behavior in your opinion or your knowledge, what is the current research um, around psychology of voice assistants? Why would vo- voice assistants be any more successful than, for example, wearables or other decision support systems that at a certain point can simply be an annoying to the patient and he or she will stop using them?
2: I think the, the biggest value that the virtual assistant has is that it actually can be more meaningful to the patient because it brings value. The fact that a person that has a question on their mind using natural language to ask the question and get a response, that creates quite a bit of value versus a device that's just reporting on data. And there's, they could go to a portal and actually see the data, but that's friction at at that point to be able to do that. And I think that that's the real winner with uh, voice assistants is that it creates that frictionless engagement.
0: People are really excited about um, Alexa and about the convenience that voice assistants bring. But uh, we, we touched a little bit on the issue of privacy concerns. For example, last year, there were reports that Alexa was randomly recording conversations. So, um, you know, there's always this g- discussion that providers will take care of data, but then breaches do happen. So consumers are still very concerned about this aspect.
2: I know that there was that one report of um that uh, mistakenly the information was basically what you would consider in the United States a butt dial the interesting thing about that is that it happened once and it's known it's really only documented once of that exact kind of a sequence to have happened yet. There's not a person that you can, that you would talk to today that hasn't have had that happen to them once a month with a mobile phone. So it's accepted that it happens with mobile phones that you make missed dials and people can hear onto your conversation. With any new technology, so we take security very, very, very seriously. You need to be able to think about how do you prevent access for the wrong people to be able to engage and interact with your voice assistant. And you're seeing that there's things already coming into play for that. So, for example, there are technology around um, who is the user speaking. So Alexa and Google support in-home, who is this user. And so you can set up your app to recognize the user. And if it doesn't recognize you, it, the app won't work. So that's one way of preventing it. Uh, we support things like ability to have a lock code. So just like with your mobile phone, in voice, it can say, okay, uh, what is your passcode? And you say your four-digit passcode. And then it then has a window where you don't have to apply that passcode. Um, so you can set that window to be never, or you can set it to be 10 minutes. And that way, you don't have to enter it if you're going to start and re-engage with Alexa over a period of time and of course it's it's user controlled so they can control their that access uh, ability just like you can on a mobile phone
0: i think this is a really important question that you kind of lead to and that is uh, with the rise of new technologies for example also blockchain there's a lot of emphasis on the user control of the data, consent and privacy policies. But in the end, I still think that uh, in the majority of cases or too often, people don't really care that much about their privacy or don't take the needed steps that they should. For example, they're not mindful of having secure passwords, they don't set up two-factor authentication, although all these things exist. So from your perspective of being in this field, to which extent do you fear, for example, that we are slowly voluntarily going towards the Big Brother uh, 1984 world where um, surveillance is possible because people are just not, you know, it's a, it's a, to uh, high cognitive load to deal with all the privacy issues. It's known that privacy policies aren't read by the users because you don't even have a choice. If you want to use something, you just need to comply with that privacy policy. So this is quite a huge topic.
2: I think when you think of the vendors, so if you think of Google, Amazon, uh, Orbita as vendors, what the way we need to manage and control that data, you know, now that someone like, uh, an Amazon will sign a BAA, it ultimately means that they're not using that data to, uh, uh, to be able to target the user for something because they've collected information around that. That's a very important point. I think where you, see the issue with like privacy and authentication is it, on the consumer side it's more about who's in the room when you're having a smart speaker or do you set up it so that um, somebody in your family can walk up and uh, and talk to your virtual assistant because you didn't apply uh, a passcode or you didn't apply so that part is in the control of the user but as far as the back end and what happens on the back end i feel very confident that all of the players are taking security at a very very serious level in fact you see how slow amazon and google are progressing with how many people can support the hipaa compliant solutions today and that's to ensure that they have everything in place to ins- ensure security
0: how do you think we could encourage or enable better user education and awareness about what steps the users need to take and how can these steps be set up in a way that they're not too complicated for a, a user
2: because you're you're making these virtual some of the default ways that the virtual assistant could work would by by default turning on all of the security so that they need to turn it off um is probably the the best thing that could happen and again i think people look for that the fact that if you're if you're in a family situation and you want to lower that barrier and friction to be able to engage with that information, often they are giving the privilege to their family members to be able to engage with them, to be able to listen to that conversation because they're part of the care. And that's a decision that they're, they're making. But to answer your question, it could be by default, the security is turned on, passcodes are turned on, voice recognition would be turned on, um, things like that uh, as the default. And they would have to lower that security in order for other family members to engage with it.
0: If I go back a little bit to the topic of designing the solutions for specific organizations, you have uh, various customers. How transferable are solutions between them? So for example, if you work for Mayo Clinic, can another healthcare provider use that to which extent can you extend that solution
2: so in the orbita platform what we've done is we've created essentially an enterprise platform that has the core capabilities for building a virtual assistant so in healthcare for example the ability to create assessment surveys is key. You always are engaging and interacting with assessment surveys. We build a very robust assessment engine, which can be applied to essentially any kind of healthcare survey. We've also built uh, a very extensive, what we would call, question and answering service that's based on a knowledge graph that has IP in it that allows you to understand the context of the topic and so that people can ask questions relative to that topic without repeating the topic name, but some attribute of it like symptoms and symptoms and treatment as opposed to the topic of appendicitis as I used as an example. Um, we've built integrations with back end systems. All these things that are repeatable. Uh, you'll see that we have some turnkey solutions for things like uh, finding, uh, uh, finding solutions, like find a doctor, find a provider, find a facility, and those things are reproducible. What we've been doing, though, is that we've also been partnering with organizations, so uh, companies like um, organizations like Mayo Clinic, where we can ingest their health content and make their health content available to other organizations. And so we're very excited about those type of partnerships because uh, we want to have trusted sources of information to create the experiences that we've been building.
0: If I try to imagine in practice how the use of voice assistants looks like in, in hospitals, Um, so voice is natural. It's fast. It's accessible, but it's also something that you need to get used to. You know, you need to be comfortable with talking to a speaker because it's not natural. You have to get used to it. How does the introduction of these solutions look like? You know, the, the training of staff or explanations to the users? Is it easy? How long does it take? We have done
2: deployments even in elderly care facilities and solutions. AARP, we did work with AARP that how can elderly people engage with a voice assistant versus uh, using a mobile application, and they found the friction that a mobile application comes to an elderly person, they have to learn every single screen uh, in order to navigate to what they want to do, meant that they gave up fairly rapidly. And so they seen that there was far less friction for them to learn how to interact with a smart speaker, and particularly because that's the way we naturally interact is with a smart speaker. As we describe this is a prediction. I don't have this from uh, any reliable source unless until you start looking at what's happening in the marketplace. Like for example, uh, Google is doing technology where it and listen to uh, multiple um, voices and s- split that those voices up so that you can listen to each voice independently. You can see that smart speakers are going to become more accurate because they instead of just nailing out the information around it, it's actually, it actually can listen to the voice of interest and then it needs to ignore the others. But you'll also see that, in my opinion, the reason why Google announced duplex, it's because of the phone concept that conversation is duplex. And so today we see these devices stop and the light turns on and then that's when we can speak. But what if they were much more natural so that it's speaking to you, and as you're hearing it, you answer it, and it takes your answer in? That's when the friction becomes less of a barrier. Another thing that you're seeing that's reducing the friction is that the fact that when you would say Alexa, you'd have to announce a invocation name like Alexa Launch Mayo Clinic and instead of doing that, you're going to see a time where it's going to know what skills are in loaded. This is actually available already with Alexa. And you could say, Alexa, how do I treat a, a spider bite? And it could, because you have the Mayo Clinic application installed and you have the right APIs in place, it can answer the question from your skill, which really reduces the refreshment. The friction. Think of that bedside assistant. What if I, and saying Alexa launched the bedside assistant, uh, you could say, Alexa, I needed a glass of water, without saying anything else, and it now is using that app to interact with, with the user.
0: What about the expansion of uh, voice assistants uh, around the globe based on uh, languages? So, of course, the American market is big and a lot of development is happening for the English language. But what about uh, other languages? Um, does each solution basically need uh, the specific natural language processing uh, model? So how do you see the issue of people that don't speak English? Are they going to be in a disadvantage because the solutions are not going to be designed for them?
2: You will see now that uh, Amazon has released to a number of different uh, languages, and that will continue to grow. They will move across the the world. You're also seeing that Google is; um, they actually have had more traction in international languages than uh, Amazon has uh, with different countries because they were just there first. It turns out whoever is is there first on the market, usually gains about two thirds of that market share. So there's a real motivation for the big virtual assistants to get into as many international markets as they can because they gain market share of those marketplaces. Now they're not the only natural language processors there's natural language processors that are gaining sh- market share that's in China for in- instance and uh they've uh, uh, and so again uh there will be other natural language processors than just the ones that we're used to which is Amazon, Bixby and uh Google.
0: What are the main chal- challenges that you see in the development? of the field and the use cases for healthcare.
2: There is a misperception that when you want a virtual assistant that it instantly just learns and so there is the concept of AI and machine learning. There is a disconnect that it doesn't just learn, that there's actually quite a bit of work to say what exactly do I want this virtual assistant to do and focus only and do that piece of what you're trying to accomplish really, really well.
0: So I mentioned before that Amazon Alexa was on the market in 2014 and Orbita was founded in 2015. Is there any correlation? How did you get into the field of voice technology?
2: My background um, from the time I was graduated from college, worked at MIT Lincoln Labs in digital signal processing. It actually was digital signal processing and voice back in 1984. And then was a a founder of a video conferencing company that had voice and video, Uh, was involved in a telemedicine company that was voice and video. And then I was a CEO of a web content management company called Ektron. That's now now, EpiServer, um, that's one of the largest web content management companies. It's in the top of the Gartner Magic Quadrant, Enforced the Wave. So I've always had a background in voice, video, uh, information. But when I was in telemedicine, I had a great experience working with Joe Kavadar out of uh, Boston. And he's somewhat considered the father of connected healthcare. And at that time, back in 1986 and 87, we seen an opportunity to connect people and engage with people at home through technology for connecting remote patient monitoring. And it was um, it was he was pretty revolutionary eye on that. When I sold that web content management company, I thought about some of those ideas that we were working on and how could we better engage with patients uh, today versus back then when we were considering connecting with just devices. And it became pretty obvious to me uh, when I seen Amazon and the Alexa, this is the next real way to engage with patients.
0: What are your predictions regarding the development of AI for voice technology in the future? Is it even possible to say where we can expect to be in five years, given the the rapid development that's happening? And if you look back at five years, things have changed significantly.
2: We're seeing already that best practices are developing. And ultimately what people are doing today even with our platform where you look and say okay i can visually design and drag and drop and create experiences what we're seeing is that they're becoming more modules and so it continues to reduce the amount of work to create these experiences and so just as an example just as you think of the most common thing that people are doing in healthcare is answering questions and instead of creating your question and answering and loading all the data, you would ultimately probably start out with a solution that is a content as a service where that's all taken care of for you, and you're just connecting to that service so as somebody asks a question. But you're going to continue to see that this combination of... Um, of services being more built out, designed, the voice UX is is perfected. Uh, All of the synonyms that are associated with the way a person would ask a question are dealt with, so it will continue to make it easier to build very robust applications very quickly.
0: When healthcare IT, EHRs um, started to be put in place, it was... Obvious pretty quickly that they're not very user friendly and today doctors hate their computers because the systems aren't friendly to them and they hinder the, their workflow and their contact with the patient. So one of the hopes is that voice technology would enable uh, the conversation eye to eye and then, you know, the data would somehow be stored with the help of voice AI. Realistically speaking, uh, how far do you think that still is with all the issues around standards, about the price of the technology, the management decisions that need to be taken in order to implement such solutions?
2: You're seeing uh, some really interesting companies, You know, Nuance has done some great areas around how does a doctor interact with a, a patient. You're seeing that there's uh, there's new technology being developed for just listening to the conversation versus a dictation type service, and so I think you'll see over the next year or so that it's the assistant is actually engaging in interacting in a way that it's on the sidelines as opposed to. You know the doctor being distracted to just have to add notes, and the assistant in that way, it, it'll automatically do that, and it'll become a way to do actionable insights. So it might remind the doctor that they forgot to ask a particular question that that they need in order for them to to complete some of the report information that would be necessary.
0: Do you think that uh, it's uh, reasonable to expect that? all these recommendations, uh, all the data management and structuring will be done by the computers or will there be people in the background? Because, for example, there are already solutions where You've got scribes in um, offices away from the doctor's office that actually listen to the recording from the doctor's office and then take care of um, inputting that data into the electronic healthcare record.
2: I think that you see that this this will be uh, much more of an assistant approach. It's actually looking and finding actionable insights. But I do think it's it's. Uh, a long time from you you're still going to have a doctor that's very much in charge of the care it might be giving them insights but it's it's not there's more years that need to go by from having the conversation for it to be automatically describing what you should do and automate some of the automate those processes but uh there's a lot of big companies putting a lot of effort into how do you optimize that experience between the doctor and the patient, and I think some great things will come out of it over the years to come.
0: Um, it's a huge question when it comes to decision support systems and AI recommendations. The whole liability issue, I think that, for example, Although medical errors are problematic, I still think that uh, there's this notion that you can forgive a person and that if a doctor makes a mistake, that's easier to forgive than, for example, if technology brings to a uh, harmful um, effect for the patient. I think we we are much less uh, tolerant towards mistakes that are a consequence of a technological input, even though the end result, statistically speaking, you know, te- technology could be more accurate than doctors, but still, because it's technology, if there's a scandal, it's gonna be perceived as much more problematic.
2: And, and I think that this is one of the balances that we looked at when we were developing our solutions. There are places where there's a probabilistic. Approach, and there are places where there's a deterministic approach. And so a probabilistic approach works well when you're doing a, how am I going to schedule an appointment, and optimizing things like the distance the person is from, what's the availability, and all of those things. That's an interesting probabilistic approach. But when you're asking a series of decision tree questions... Um, those decision trees have been proven and they are tested, and you, so, and that's where you need to be able to use um, decision tree logic when it um, you're basically you're following the guidelines of the the proven way of doing something. So if a human was asking it, or the bot was asking it, they're asking the same question, and based on the answer, they're going to ask the next uh, question. And it's going to generate the same alert if they're both doing their job correctly, which the bot will, <laughs> and hopefully the human does. We're not crossing the line where we uh, we are making... Uh, Healthcare decisions, we're following a, a proven decision tree uh, in order to alert someone about the information that we've collected.
0: How challenging do you see having systems updated based on the changes that are happening in medicine, based on the progress, differences in protocols between institutions? I think it's really, really difficult to constantly stay on top of the latest advancements in science.
2: Yes, and, and ultimately that's why we've built a very extensible platform and we have partners like a Cognizant and a Deloitte that are also working in uh, with these organizations and helping them to push the boundaries of what they can do.
0: You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. To learn more, go to our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com And of course, stay tuned, subscribe, and if you have a minute or two, leave a rating or review in iTunes. It really helps. Thank you.